Welcome to the manufacturing come up. This episode of the manufacturing come up is sponsored by Elite Automation. I'm Malachi Greb, CEO and engineer of Elite Automation. We specialize in robotic applications as well as the design and manufacturing of the weld fixtures within the robotic application, but it don't stop there. We generally do any type of application that involves a robot within it. We're heavily built on controls engineers and can handle many different platforms from Fanic Kuka, Yaskawa, ABB, Allen Bradley, Siemens, all these different platforms is one of the things that's that I've noticed as a controls engineer, right? That's my background, that these are the key things and the, and the key struggles for a systems integrator. Uh, if you have all the controls people, all the other things are somewhat simple. The, the, the electrical engineering, all the other things are small portions of, of the work. Uh, and also the mechanical engineering side of it, right? So that's why we've grown to really specialize in the weld fixtures and, and really getting very good at all the uh, different mechanical engineering facets due to the high tolerances and the, and the high uh, attention to detail that's needed in weld fixtures. We also are focused on AMR technologies. They're huge in our industry. As you can see, I'm wearing a shirt. Well, it's in our logos and stuff like that. Got, that, got the AMR right here, got the UR right here, collaborative robots. I've been forgetting those because we're really focused on working with newer technologies so that way we make sure that we have the newest tools in the industry to be able to help other manufacturers grow in their business and also can deploy the most robust and the most efficient systems for our end customers. So if you'd like any more info or to request a quote, email rfq at eliteautomationusa.com. Okay, welcome to the manufacturing come up, sponsored by Starbucks. Okay, <laughs> just kidding, not sponsored by Starbucks, but uh, sponsored by Elite Automation, that's actually true. Uh, we have an awesome guest here. We have Nikki Gomez, right? Gonzalez. Gonzalez, I always do it backwards. Just that's restart okay. that. <laughs> I don't mind either way. You can restart it or we can keep it. Awesome. Awesome. So thank you for coming. You're welcome. Thank you Thanks for being. Thanks for having me. Yeah. We're glad We've to have you. We've been having fun at the show so far. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's been an amazing show, right? Um, yeah, and your happy hour last night was, was great. Thank you. Appreciate that. Thank you. I think it's good too. Yeah, everybody needs a, a nice wind down spot. No, and it was a good one, like with actual comfy seats and, you know, it wasn't too crowded and too loud. Sometimes it's like you go from one crowded place standing up to another, to another, to yeah. another, and it gets exhausting. Yeah, it's all just work at yeah. that point, right? Yeah. So uh, the, the premise of this podcast is to dive deep into your backstory, kind of where you came from, and we can go as far back as you want to go. Because <laughs> um, like in, re have all day. <laughs> <laughs> in reality, like the, the two things that we're trying to capture out of this podcast is how do we like like I think the most ideal candidate is somebody that just don't have any direction at all. Maybe they're young, they're still in high school or something like that. Yeah. And and even more so, like maybe they're like not even on a good path in life, right? Maybe they're like partying or just, you know. So I think that like if we can touch those individuals, like that'll have the biggest impact on, on, on people. Sure. Um, and so people's backstories, because everybody's backstory is what like, really adds context. It's what people like fall in love with that. Um, and then secondly is like your your thoughts and opinions on how we can uh, help individuals or what things that they could do, like more maybe more strategical things to to guide them. So if you wouldn't mind, start with uh, 
your backstory. Sure. Yeah. So uh, my name is currently Nikki Gonzalez, although Nikki is the nickname. Um, I'll go out there and say my, my real name is Hulda Margret Hallgrimsdóttir. And Hallgrimsdóttir is my, uh, my maiden name, although now it's my middle name. And I'm originally from Iceland. That's where that comes really? from. Can you say it one more time? The whole thing. Hulda Margret Hallgrimsdóttir Gonzalez. I love that. Wow. It's not easy to pronounce in English. When I moved here when I was a kid, I got nicknamed Nikki and it stuck and I just, it's easier. It's a lot easier. A lot easier, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Easier to remember, easier to spell, uh, easier to pronounce. So I've gone with that. Uh, but yeah, I've, I've, uh, I, I grew up in a small town in Iceland and very kind of idyllic childhood. Although, you know, we didn't have a lot of money. That place over there, it, it's, I didn't notice it. Right? It's a chill place. It's a chill place. I grew up in, you know, an apartment and then a townhouse. And it wasn't until we moved abroad that we got a, you know, single family house. But over there, it didn't really ever feel like I was wanting or lacking anything. I had, you know, my grandparents living close by. I had friends. I could go play outside when I was a kid. Um, I got to start taking the bus and going to the public pool by myself when I was eight. So I had a decent amount of independence because it was such a small, safe place. And then uh, my dad was an electrical engineer. Uh, I was actually born in Reykjavik, which is the capital city of Iceland, because my dad was going to college, finishing his electrical engineering degree. And then we moved back to our hometown, Akureyri, and he got this job developing um, these fish, this fishing equipment. Uh, he kind of started doing like controls engineering type stuff for these electronic jigging reels. And some other, um, they had some government contracts and things like that. So he got involved with these like uh, European commissions for technology. Hmm. And there was like a European Technology Fisheries Commission, something or other, that his company, um, he became a representative for. And he started working with some international companies on these projects for uh, fishing fleets or fleets of boats, technologies for connecting them and for safety and things like that. Um, and so he ended up getting offered a job by one of the cooperating companies from England, which is a big defense contractor in Britain at the time called Raykel. And they offered him a job um, to come out there. And I guess it was my dad, you know, he wanted to move to the U.S. That was kind of his, I don't know if it was his dream for a long time or he just decided that's where I want to go. Probably a nice opportunity whenever you're not U.S. citizen. Well, also growing up in such a small place is a blessing, but it also feels very limiting in some yeah. cases, yeah. right? Um, and I think to a professional, in some cases, it can be like there's a whole wide world of opportunity somewhere else. Um, and so he got this opportunity, and Raykel, in order to get his visa to come to the U.S. and everything, they, they had to have him work for them for a longer period of time. So he ended up moving to England first. Okay. And... We were there for about a year before he was transferred over to Houston, Texas. And so moving to England was a little bit of a culture shock, you know, but not huge. I started going from like Icelandic school where in Iceland, we're very informal. We don't use family names. That's where Halgrim's daughter comes from. It's a patronym. So it's really I'm just Halgrim's daughter. It's my dad's first name with daughter added to the end. If I had a brother, his last name would be Halgrim's son. So in England and in English, right, you, you're, you say, yes, sir, ma'am, you know, Mr. This, Mr. That. In Iceland, you call everybody by their first name. Okay. Like our phone book is alphabetized by first names. Really? <laughs> so a few things I had to learn, like coming to school, I ended up going to a 
the equivalent of a private school in England um, where we wore uniforms and things like that. And all that was very new to me. But also, like, it still wasn't that big of a difference. I could go take the train by myself. I rode my bike to school. Still a fairly safe area. And... Yes, and somewhat similar cultures. Um, I had learned to speak English somewhat. I went to a little exchange uh, program to an English school for kids in England for three weeks the previous summer before we knew we were going to move to England. So that really helped me out. But I gained, I, I picked up a very heavy British accent. <laughs> and not the Queen's English either. It was like the local, <laughs> you know, sort of dialect where, where I lived, which was south of London. And then we moved to the US, to Texas, to Houston, the suburbs of Houston. And Houston is a four million, you know, population city. Huge. Huge. The schools were just massive, right? I went from being in a school with 30 kids or maybe 60 in my grade to in England, a slightly bigger school. And then I came to a middle school in Texas where there were like thousands of kids in each grade. And you did not have, like both of the schools I went to were similar to what US style like is in elementary school. You have the same class of kids all day. Yeah. And in, in Iceland, like the teachers rotate into your classroom if you have different subjects. Oh, really? Interesting. And then I came to the US and it was like, now there's hundreds of kids or thousands of kids. And in every class you have new kids in your class. <laughs> yeah, with like different periods and stuff yeah. like that, yeah. And it was, uh, I, you know, I, I used to wear the same clothes for a few days in a row because growing up, it was just everything in Iceland was expensive. Um, and I got called Adidas girl because I wore like Adidas clothes. clothes. Yeah, <laughs> I, I just, I, it was, it was definitely not a fun transition for me. I didn't like it. I lost all of my independence because we lived in the suburbs and you couldn't go anywhere without being driven somewhere. Yeah, there's not Calling somebody else's mom to, you know, set up a time to come play. Yeah. And I got kind of depressed about it. Like I really wanted to move back. I hated it. How old were you at this time? I was 12. 12? Yeah. Yeah, it is a big change. And my name was strange, right? So like, I didn't fit in at school. Were you Nikki at this point or no, not yet? Well, it was the kids in my neighborhood when I moved to Texas that they got tired of either me trying to tell them my name, were, they weren't spelling it, you know, pronouncing it right or something. But one day they gave me a choice. We're going to give you a nickname. Do you want to be called Nikki or Amanda? They said. <laughs> and I already knew somebody named Amanda. So I was like, oh, I'll take Nikki, I guess. <laughs> Having no idea that I would be, you know, choosing a name that I would be using for the rest of my life. Yeah. yeah. But that's, I guess, one common theme in my story is like most of my things were not planned by me. They kind of, I, I, I learned to kind of go with the flow. So I really didn't like it there. I tried my best to get my parents to move back. That was obviously not happening. So it took me about, it wasn't until high school that I somehow made a decision that, you know what, this is not going to change. I just, I'm either going to be a miserable person or I'm just going to make the best of it. Yeah. And it was really an internal, like, attitude change. My circumstances didn't change. Yeah. I also used to, I never grew up, like, smiling with my teeth showing. And so when people would ask me to smile or we'd had class pictures, I would smile like that. Yeah. And this is also something, I don't know, U.S. culture, but constantly people would be telling me to smile or asking me what's wrong. And I'm like, nothing is wrong. They're like, well... Why do you look so mad? Or why do you look so sad? I'm like, I don't know. I'm not. That's just my face. <laughs> yeah, um, I know what you mean. I get that. Like, yeah. 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 <laughs> I, and also, like, I was over in India, and, like, 
everybody, like, I'm not gonna say everybody, like 90% of the people that walk around, like, they look so mad when they're walking around, but it's like, just part of their culture. Like, you don't even know what's on their mind until you start talking to them, they'll go like this, and it's just like, their face just brightens up and you're like, oh, okay. <laughs> so I don't know what, again, it was kind of around that time. I started to just smile at people with my teeth. At first it felt weird, and then I got used to it. And I think I've read since that psychology studies show, like, even if you're fake smiling, it actually makes you happy. Not yeah. immediately yeah. and, you know, maybe not if you're really having a hard time, yeah. but like psychologically, your body responds yeah. to that. Yeah. And so I really just kind of started to make the best of it. You know, I still didn't have a ton of friends in high school, but I, I enjoyed it. I, I liked, you know, I had AP classes and stuff like that. Um, my dad really helped me with AP physics. And <laughs> I started working for my dad because he, so the contract that brought him to the US, they actually closed that division like a year or two into his six year contract. And he didn't want to move back to Iceland. We had already bought a house. And so he ended up starting his own business. And I started working for him. Um, I used to babysit a bit and stuff like that. But my parents were always like, you know, you pay for your own stuff. You know, there's ways to make money. I've I grew up that way. My dad grew up that way. Um, so I started working for him in his office and I got I, my first summer. I ended up writing the technical user manuals for all the hardware that he was making. What type of business was it? So he was doing um, satellite tracking and communications for fleets of trucks and boats and things like that. And so he's an electrical engineer, but he basically built and designed the PCBs and the in the box with microcontrollers and all the satellite, you know, communications and stuff. And wow. uh, then after about a year or two, it became a hybrid GPRS and satellite system. Back then, like the cell phone networks weren't so good. And especially yeah. in rural yeah. areas where, you know, truck routes, tr long haul truck routes, there would yeah. be dead zones everywhere. So the only way to make sure that you'd be able to ping and know where your truck was at was to use satellite transceivers. Yeah. And then once the GPS network started to get better, we would do a dual hardware solution where it would use the, the GPS uh, using the SIM cards. And then as soon as it would drop out, it would do a backup on the satellite. So the communication like is cheaper using the cell phone networks. It's cheaper using cell phone networks? Yeah. Really? Satellite like the data rates and stuff for satellites are quite a bit more expensive really? because yeah. satellites are more expensive to launch yeah. and maintain yeah. and all that. <laughs> right. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And so I learned, uh, I was just, I loved what he was doing. I was really into it. Um, and then in the truck terminals, there would be this touch screen where the truck drivers could log, you know, their state, their mileage for calculating their fuel taxes and they could make reports and maintenance requests and things like that. So my dad made these, you know, touch screens with these different buttons and things. And then I wrote, I went through and took screenshots and copied and pasted and like cropped all the little icons and put them in a document and explained what you know, press this button that does this. And then um, that was my first stint at kind of sort of like technical writing and marketing. So you're building out the documentation, like the user manual for this yeah. system. Yeah, so I built the user manual my first summer as well as creating the uh, spec sheets and the marketing material because they were going to their first trade show and had nothing. And I sort of copied or, or looked for inspiration to the spec sheets that came with like the satellite hardware that we got from a third party provider. Mm. And then um, the software company that was uh, that my dad was using in Iceland for some of the web stuff. And I just kind of like took some of those and I learned how to use Microsoft Publisher. <laughs> and 
I actually even made, um, I helped my dad make a logo for his business. And then I made the materials and we printed them all out. I made 300 copies of everything. And we got these nice shiny black folders and I stuffed them all by hand before they went to the show. Awesome. Looking back at them, of course, like, you know, marketing materials made by a middle schooler. They were pretty darn good though yeah. for yeah. considering. Yeah. Um, but I just, I loved supporting my dad and his team um, when they went to the shows. I was so proud. Like they actually handed out that stuff that I made. Yeah, and how old are you at this point? I was probably 14. Oh wow, that's amazing. Yeah, and so every yeah. summer I got to intern for him and basically touch different parts of the business. I started doing some accounting when I was like 15. I would do the, you know, the, the reconciliations at the end of the month. I would, you know, mail out invoices. I got to answer the phones. Did something get you excited to help him or was there some push from him to get you to help or what was that dynamic and how, how you got involved? So I used to babysit. That was my way to make extra money. And the people in my neighborhood, they paid like $4 an hour, $5 an hour for babysitting two or three kids. And most of them <laughs> were pretty terrible. Yeah. I'm not a huge fan of kids and that experience like cemented it for me. Right. And so honestly, when he offered me the option to come work for him, or maybe I asked, I don't remember. I just, I always remember loving going to my dad's office, see what he did. And it was kind of like, oh, there's so many cool people and they're sitting at desks and talking to each other and doing things. And his old office in Iceland used to have like a billiards table in the break room and stuff like that. So I just thought like, oh, how cool would it be to get to dress up and go work in an office? And when I got the opportunity to do that, to earn extra money instead of babysitting all summer, yeah. I was like, heck yes. And I really enjoyed myself in that sort of office environment. I, you know, played at dressing up professionally and, yeah. and I actually, you know, got a lot of good job experience. And I was now looking back and having hired my own interns and even like employees, I was a damn good employee at 14. Right. <laughs> like I tried really hard. I put the work in. I actually got a lot of stuff done. And, and produce stuff that was usable. And it's, a, and it's a really proud moment for your father. Like, that's one of the things, like, you know, that's super valuable is that, like, you know, me personally, I'm a business owner. I have children. Yeah. How do I bring my children into the business? Do I, do I ask them to come into the business? Um, or do, do I just let them organically come in? Or... You know, you have you have individuals like a Gary Vanderchuk where, you know, his dad was pretty much dragging him by the ear and said, you're going, you know, you're going, I don't care if it's Saturday, you're coming. Yeah. Um, so yeah. my dad's approach was always, I support whatever you want to do. And so it might have been me that asked or maybe he offered, but he would never have been like, you're coming to work for me. That That's just not his MO, yeah. right? And my sister actually is five years younger than me. So it took some time for her to, to come into this as well. She actually came into the business too, but in a totally different way, she ended up like soldering and building PCBs and testing sensors and stuff in the, in the back. Cause she's, she doesn't like talking to people. She didn't want to answer the phone to save her life. Like, <laughs> whereas I, I would do that. I loved, you know, messing with hardware sometimes, but I really found I liked a variety of things. I wanted to try everything in the business really cool. where she was like, I really enjoy like just being back here and doing a task and getting paid for that yeah. and then going home. Yeah. And we grew up with the same, you know, same opportunity, yeah. same environment, but we're different personalities. Yeah. And so she came into the business and stayed there for longer than I did. Cause I moved away, but always in the, you know, assembly or, you know, that sort of back end of the house. Yeah. Um, 
but yeah, he, I was really, really lucky with that. I had a great example. I had somebody that could like tutor me when I took AP physics. I probably only passed it because my dad, you know, helped me. <laughs> and I was like, you know what? I really love this technical stuff. Like I loved physics, but I had to work so much harder at it than I did at writing or yeah. communication. I took theater classes, things like that. So I really like liked the outgoing people aspect of it. So I thought to myself like, A, I'm gonna have to study all the time yeah. if I will go into engineering. Yeah. And B, I don't wanna sit at a desk like developing stuff. Yeah. I wanna be the, the person like out there with people. So, and I saw my dad at this point as an entrepreneur, as a CEO. He also ran a side business to pay for, you know, starting up and his operations for his tech business. He imported fish from China. Oh, really? Um, because he had a buddy from Iceland that he started Previously, he started some businesses with his friend when he was in Iceland. Like I said, I always learned like if you want to make money, you find a way to make money yourself. So when he was in college or even in high school, he used to buy fish from the docks and go drive out to farms and sell it. So they had a fish business with his car until uh, somebody crashed his car at a party one time and then his business went out of, <laughs> went out of business. Um, well, this guy that he had his first fish business with moved to China. And so they started buying um, fish from Atlantic, like Russian North Atlantic trawlers that were uh, fishing in the, in the North Atlantic and then having it cut and processed and frozen into you know, the pieces in China, then shipped over to the US and they would go into like fish tacos at Rubio's and Del Taco and these sort oh, of right. fast food type wow. chains. That's pretty yeah. cool. And so he did that to finance him starting up and building wow. his tech business. And so I just always saw like, hey, you do what you got to do yeah. to, to build your life and your business. Because he kind of had, you know, he came here with the dream and then his job disappeared. That hustle is like super, super important. It's something that uh, that I didn't really realize that I did until I was an adult. Like, you know, I listen to Gary Vaynerchuk a lot. And, and one of the things is like, he was like, I was always selling baseball cards. I was always like yeah. doing this thing. And like, I was like, man, I maybe, you know, I'm not like a business owner or maybe I, you know, didn't have that in my DNA because I don't really remember like selling things like that. And then like it clicked one day. It was like, it was like a year or two later after I had that thought. And I was like, that's right. I was out, I was like 12 years old out mowing grasses. I was out like just doing like little small things to make money. I was doing construction with my uncle and going on construction sites. And uh, I mean, I've been working since I was like 12 years old, like pretty much nonstop. By the time I was 14, I had a nine to five job. Uh, working at McDonald's that I did for like five years or something like that. And then, but it's, it's, it's having the audacity to like grind and find some hustle, something to flip, sell, make money. And especially with online, it's so much easier now. Like your, oh, yeah. like your dad's like OG and like finding like things to like flip and sell like Well, that. he used to flip cars. He would buy old rusty cars. Cause in Iceland, we, you know, we're islands with a lot of salty air and you know, old cars will rust if they're not taken care of. And he, you know, would repair them anything that was wrong with the engine or mechanical or whatever. But then he would uh, patch up and like repaint the cars and everything and then sell them for a profit. He used to build computers for people uh, on the side once he had his full time engineering job. Um, back before there was like, you know, Dell and stuff. Yeah, right. <laughs> and yeah, so he's always had different ways to, you know, make money. And I saw that and I didn't think about it either. But when I was a kid in Iceland, one summer, my friends and I started a magazine that we sold subscriptions to. 
and we hand like drew and wrote this magazine every copy. No it's not like we sold many subscriptions because right. <laughs> we didn't run into the problem of like, oh, how do we scale this? Yeah. Um, but that was one of the things we did. Another time uh, I had a community garden and I then picked and sold the vegetables door to door That's at awesome. the end of the summer after I harvested them all. Um, Nobody told me to do those things. I think I just kind of saw the example. Like, if you want to, you know, make some money, don't ask for it. Go do it. Yeah. My mom, my parents thing was always my mom's um, and credit to my mom. She was super good at like budgeting and working with the limited amount of money that we had. So the, what she drilled into me is if you come asking for something, make sure you need it. If you just want it, then you're welcome to save and spend your own money on it. So like how many pairs of pants did I really need? like three. If I wanted yeah. more, I had to pay for it. Yeah. <laughs> mm. So again, like I said, do you have all day? Well, we ended up moving to the US. I worked for my dad and then I ended up um, getting an international business degree because I kind of really wanted this. I wanted to travel. I was like, we're already, I'm already having to have dealt with this culture shock stuff and figuring out how to communicate with people that a, maybe I speak the language, but like, I had a lot of instances where we said the wrong thing in the wrong way and didn't know it. Um, so I thought that international business would be a cool thing to major in. Um, and I went to college, again, I paid for my own college. So that's one of the reasons I took all those AP classes in high school. Cause I knew if you can test out, if you get the AP credits, you don't have to pay for the college classes. Yeah, super smart. And so I ended up graduating college in three years, which was really nice because I was able to pay off my student loans like you know, it didn't take me forever. And then I worked all throughout college. So the only thing I took student loans for was my tuition. And I made sure that my living expenses were paid for by my job. And so I worked for my dad in the summers and during spring break. And I then ended up working remotely for him as well once I had my own apartment. I think one year, yeah, I started doing um, some sales type stuff like pre-sales. I would uh, validate lists of fleet managers. I would call them and make sure that they were at the company and they were the right person. And then I would uh, send them a brochure with a little letter and then the salespeople were supposed to follow up on that. And so every week I would do like a batch and take them to the post office and make the calls. And I could do that from Austin while I was in college. And I got offered an internship with an oil company um, during college, cause I had to, for my classes, I had to like do an in informational interview with someone. And I asked my dad if he knew anybody and a friend of his was a business development manager at an oil, uh, technology company. And so I had this, you know, mock interview with him. Right. And it's like, you're interviewing for an internship position, but you're kind of doing it to learn, to get experience of how to interview. Um, and that I would recommend to anybody, whether you have to do it for a class or not. If you're interested at all in any kind of field and you know someone or you see someone that you're like, I would maybe like to do what this person does one day, like contact them and ask them, hey, would you be open to doing a mock interview with me yeah. or, you know, just or or just pick their brain for a little while. But I think the mock interview thing is a really good exercise because yeah. it gets you in the frame of mind of learning how to present yourself. And then you get to understand sort of what questions they ask or might be asked of you in that situation. And there's no pressure because you're not actually applying for a job. Yeah, absolutely. But I learned a ton because I also got to ask him questions. And I asked him like, you know, to be where you are today, 
you know, what would you recommend or why, why did you take this path or why are you, you know, a business development manager and how do you like that? I didn't really know at the time that business development kind of just means sales, but it is in a slightly different scope. Oftentimes it's not just direct accounts, but you're more developing the entire relationship. Yeah. And it, and it varies a little bit nowadays, depending on the company and what they call it. Right. Um, but as a, uh, being younger and I didn't know, I was like, man, that sounds so fancy. Like he has such a cool title. And I asked him like, cause I was like, I kind of want to get a master's degree. Like I might want to get an MBA. I said, do, do you think I should get an MBA before I, and he said, absolutely not. I recommend that you start working, figure out what you want, where you like to be, yeah. because an MBA is the most valuable if you really know what you're going to apply it to and coming straight out of college, you still don't know, you know, and that I think was really valuable for me because I still to this day have not gotten that MBA, <laughs> although it's still on my potential bucket list. Yeah. I've just been learning so much now in my career that I a, don't have the time and B, I don't need it. I don't feel like I have the interest yeah. as much. But back then it was like I thought you had to just get more and more and more and more credentials yeah. to be valuable. Yeah, I was the same way early on in my career and I actually did something creative like you did with your high school uh, classes. Whenever I was going to college, I all my electives that I took were for another degree. Okay, so yeah. that way, whenever I got done with this first degree, I only had two more semesters of classes to take, and then I had a second degree. Yeah. And so, like, being strategic like that definitely uh, definitely helps out. And, uh, that was actually really smart. Growing quickly. So yeah. I loved. I was in the Spanish club in high school, and I, coming to the U.S., it was definitely when I got to high school it was hammered into me that you have to go to college. And to get to a good college, to get accepted, you have to have not just good grades, but extracurricular activities. You have to have, you know, do community service. You have to do all these things. So I was like, you have to be in clubs. So I was like, okay, well, I'm taking a Spanish class. I'll join the Spanish club. And then, uh, you know, one year I got elected the secretary and then the historian. I was kind of uncomfortable with that kind of stuff because it felt like a popularity contest. But again, it was like, to get into good college, you have to have these yeah. things. So I was like, I'm gonna run for the secretary. Well, I eventually ended up becoming the president of the Spanish club in That's my awesome. senior year. And I really started to like enjoy that. And, and you know, the camaraderie around the kids that were in the club and we would like take a trip to San Antonio every year. And that was really fun. Um, and I ended up getting a tiny scholarship from my Spanish studies that ended up paying for my textbooks my freshman year. But I also took AP Spanish. And so I had almost enough credits to get a minor in Spanish oh, wow. in college. And it worked out well because international business requires you to study abroad for a semester, either a summer or a semester in a country speaking the language that you're also studying. Mm. So I really wanted to go to Spain, That's really cool. but it was very, very expensive. Yeah. So I was like, well, I live in Texas. I'll go to Mexico. <laughs> Flight's <laughs> very, cheap. Very cheap. Right, yeah. <laughs> the living expenses are cheap. Yeah. Uh, so I ended up going abroad to Monterey, Mexico uh, for the summer before I graduated. So because I was, yeah, so I ended up graduating kind of at the end of the summer. And I had, I applied for a job before the summer semester because I didn't want to just end up like with graduating and not knowing what to do. But still, so I, international business degree is super broad. It's all the different business, you know, you would learn a little bit of finance, a little bit of accounting, a little bit of marketing. And all of it was like, and then a few international business type classes. I took a lot of, whatever I had the option, I would take an entrepreneurial type class. So it would be like 
entrepreneurial marketing or international business for entrepreneurs or something like that. Because I just, I saw that with my dad and I was like, one day I want to start my own business. So yeah, one of my favorite professors in college, he was uh, a professor on the side. He was a sales manager at Aero Electronics, which is a distributor of uh, electronics, some automation type stuff. I run into them nowadays a little bit. But he had also started a few companies in his past, and it was very cool. Like, you could definitely tell the difference between the professors that were like academia professors and ones that were teaching from personal experience from industry. Right. Another one 100%, was 100% on yeah, that one for sure. Even though I did not enjoy accounting at all, and I hated my accounting class, my accounting professor was awesome. He actually did accounting for manufacturing companies. He was the uh, CPA or whatever that did accounting for a company called Michelangelo's Frozen Foods. I don't know if you've seen their frozen lasagnas. It sounds their, familiar. Their eggplant parmesans, the frozen ones, are bomb. Okay. And I only <laughs> tried them because he gave us all coupons to try it. <laughs> and the one piece of advice that stuck with me from him was he's like, if, even if you never do accounting and you don't like it, whatever, the only thing I want to make sure that you take away from this is use your 401k match. When you go, if you go work for a company and they will match your retirement savings, yeah. A, that is free money. Free money, yep. Right? Because you put in yours and yep. they match it up to a certain percent. Yeah. And then compounding interest. Yeah. If you start saving that when you first start working and you get the extra free money from your company and then it compounds the interest every year, that is not the end all be all of having a retirement, but that is money and that you can build from the start, even if it's small. And so I, I took that to heart. I don't think I would have otherwise necessarily. Yeah. And and if I'm not mistaken, like even with doing your own 401k, you can retire being a millionaire, if I'm not mistaken. Like especially, especially with, with the matches, right? The match is a no brainer, right? But even doing it yourself, the earlier you start, the more like you earn interest the first year and then it adds to the principal. And then the second year, it earns interest on that yeah. whole deal and then it gets bigger every year and then it earns more interest every year. And so it compounds and it grows over time. It starts to grow way more once you get older. Yeah. But that money that you put away when you're 20, by the time you're 60, it's earning tons of interest because it's yeah. gotten so much bigger. Yeah, it's like 25 years or something like that. Yeah, it's almost enough to like sustain an income. And I wish that like that was taught more. I was just lucky that this professor made a point to, to tell us that um, because I didn't learn about any of that in high school. Nobody teaches how to manage your personal finances or like how interest works, why, you know, getting into credit card debt is such a deep hole, right? Because the interest, the compounding works both ways, yeah. right? Yeah. And, uh, and at 26%, it's a lot different. <laughs> yeah. And of course, you go to any college campus and there's just like, tables of credit card companies handing you your first credit card. And it's like, why would you give credit cards to kids that are clearly like not making money yet and they're already paying tuition and all this stuff? It, yeah, so I thankfully managed to avoid that. Um, And then I've got my first job. So the reason I went into uh, manufacturing was again, kind of, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I had this business degree. Um, I actually was like, hey dad, should I come work for you? And he's like, no, go out in the world. Number one, I can't afford to pay you what you need to be paid. And two, like you go get your own experience. Yeah. Um, and I appreciate that because it was super valuable. So again, didn't know what I wanted to do, but I had done some sales at when I was working for my dad. I actually made my first sort of technical sale 
doing a remote demo while I was in uh, at a trucking trade show in Dallas. I like did a hotel room demo over the internet with a, a customer in Washington State. And it was just, I was kind of lucky. I answered the phone because nobody was around when they called and they just let me run with it. They were like, hey, just, you know, ask for help if you need it. But otherwise, like, this is your deal. Yep. You can be the account manager. And I just solved the problem. Like, I didn't know how to sell or anything, yeah. but I answered their questions. We went through the application. I made sure that they, you know, had a system that fit what they were looking for. And we demoed it and tested it and quoted it. And then they bought it and they had it installed and it solved their problem. Yeah. And they actually wrote a thank you letter or whatever, an email to my dad. I don't think they knew that I was his daughter, but they were like, we just wanted to let you know, we really appreciated how Nikki, you know, helped us with this whole process and stuff. And it gave me a little light bulb, like sales doesn't have to be salesy or icky. When you're solving somebody's problem and they don't know how to solve it themselves, yeah. the sales engineer or technical salesperson or whatever is in fact a you know a consultant to them. And they were so happy about it that I was like, this makes me really happy. Yeah. Like I like this. And so I applied for technical sales and technical marketing positions. And I ended up working for Keyance. <laughs> and lucky me, you know, they just are willing to take anybody that has the aptitude and is willing to be trained. Right. Trained in the dark arts of the Keyance sale, you know? <laughs> And I, you know, it was pretty cool. I wanted to leave Texas. I didn't like it there. I had made, you know, made do and been happy with it, but I wanted to move somewhere else. And Keyence also gave me that opportunity. They're like, we have 50 offices in the US or something. And you can tell us your top 10 and hopefully you'll make it to one of them. But we'll come, you know, you come to Chicago, you get trained on all of our sensors and technologies. And then, you know, the way it works at, or worked at the time is that, you would tell them your top 10 cities, and then in order of their technology divisions, which ones you liked the most or wanted to work in. And then they would also make their own assessment of like, which one are you well suited for? And then they would kind of match up the openings in the different offices with that. Mm -hmm. And so I ended up doing machine vision sales in the Northern California office, which is the San Francisco oh. Bay area. It so wasn't my number you're... one choice because I had never been there before. I didn't know. I actually picked, uh, the, all the West Coast, so Seattle number one, I think LA number two because my husband was in a band and he was like, oh, I can go like play music in LA. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think Northern California was my third choice because I was like, well, if I can't make it to Seattle or LA, at least I'm on the West Coast. Yeah. And man, did that work out for me. Like I had no idea what I had in store moving to the Bay Area. So I've always like had a, not a plan or a goal exactly, but like interest, and then kind of followed whatever doors opened for me. Yeah. And kind of discovering what you like. Exactly. Right. You just... And what I what I did with college was like I picked the major that I thought was the most interesting to me. I didn't have a defined outcome of like I want to get this job. Yeah. Afterwards, I knew I wanted to work in business in an office type setting, mm -hmm. but like that's super general. Yeah. Right. And my sister also was never very, like, she didn't have that direction. And my dad was always like, just go learn. Yep. Get the degree. You can always change your major. You can always, but just open that door while it's start. open yeah. and get through it and start. And then you will know more once you get to the next step. Yeah, like one thing I advise people when it, when it comes to like going to college, one, I would advise people just to go, right? At a minimum, go get a two-year degree. Yeah. And get a two-year degree in something that 
you know the average pay is gonna be decent, right? Get 25 plus an hour or something like that. Like, cause after you do that, now you make an income that's good enough that you can financially pivot if you want to. Yeah. Save up for a year or two if you wanna go move to the West Coast, if you're not from the West Coast or whatever just decision you wanna make, it becomes a lot easier when you have money in your pocket. When you're making $12 an hour, it's a lot hard to, much, much harder, almost impossible to make those things without taking like a much bigger leap and, and scarier leap. I, know. Uh, at that. I hear people say when like cities are, you know, people are trying to grapple with like housing prices being high and stuff in big cities. Yeah. And I hear people say, oh, well they should just move somewhere cheap, like Kentucky or whatever, like especially yeah. when I was in California. And I'm like, when you're living paycheck to paycheck, you can't just pick up and move to another state. Like you have to pay for moving expenses. You have to take time off. You're going to get no pay. You have to find a job in a new market. You have to put in a deposit on an apartment or house. Like when you work a low wage job, you it, it's very difficult yeah. to go and just move across the country. Yeah. And luckily, you know, when you're younger and have less attachments, mm -hmm. right? You have less responsibility. You don't have some, some people have kids, yeah. obviously in younger ages even, yeah. but you know, it's not as simple as that, right? Yeah. So I did, my mom was like, oh, do you want to go to community college and stay here for the first two years? You can save some money and stay home. And it was just such a thing. Like, I think with the people that were at my high school, because I was in the AP classes and stuff, it was just considered like a no-go. Like, what kind of loser are you going to community yeah. college was like the general sentiment yeah. I found within the people that were around me. Yeah. And I really looking back like that was really unfortunate yeah because now understanding a lot more being you know having seen more things real in world, the industry yeah. real world i was like how dumb was that to yeah, think that everybody had to follow that same path um and to think that it's somehow inferior to be yeah. getting a degree at the community college versus going to you know a big school yeah. i mean i paid a lot that was a very expensive degree and even i saw i really my dream was to go to harvard but when wow. i when I saw how much it cost to go to Harvard. <laughs> and also I was an international student still at the time. I was not a citizen yet. And those private schools, they don't accept international students unless you prove that you have the money to pay for at least an entire year. Because oh, wow. they don't want you to come to their school and then get stuck yeah. and be broke yeah. or something. Yeah. Or I think they also use that tuition to like subsidize other students and stuff. Gotcha. So I, I, that was a dream that really like the door got shut in my face. And I was a little bit upset at first. And then I looked at, okay, what are my options? Well, I lived in Texas. They had a law that if you graduate from a Texas high school, even if you're an international student or undocumented student, whatever, you can get in-state tuition at a Texas state college. And so I, looked, I was like, well, UT is the best college in Texas and it's in Austin, it's great. I'm gonna go there. Nice, so did you move away from home to, and stay on campus? Yes. Gotcha. So I stayed on campus. Austin was about a two-hour drive from home. Uh, I would go home on the weekends to work and stuff sometimes, to, yep. you know, when I needed to make extra money. That was nice. Uh, but it was nice for me. You know, I did want to move out and kind of start being more independent. Yeah. So I lived on campus and that sort of thing. That's one thing I advise. That, so it gets a route I didn't go. I did go to the community college route because I didn't have a lot of options. Part of the reasons with doing this podcast is I didn't have the options because I wasn't educated on the options. Right. Um, but I do think like, if you're going out of high school, especially if you don't know any other options, go to college that's not in your hometown. Yeah. Like just, just to be able to move away, get a whole nother ecosystem of other individuals who moved away from home. Like 
it's an experience that you can't capture really any other place. And it only lives in a small area of your lifetime. Like if yeah. I go back to a college and live on campus, it's a little bit weird at my age. <laughs> <laughs> and I definitely also learned through other kids that I met in college or even in Austin, ACC, the Austin Community College, they have a lot of paths to where you can start there and they kind of feed you into the bigger college. So almost every big college town that has like a big state college will have community colleges around that give you the option to earn credits that will then feed you if you want to into the larger school. And my sister went to UT as well, but she dropped out um, after a little while. But um, her boyfriend was there also from Houston, but he was going to Austin Community College. So he again, made that change to go be independent, but he was going to community college rather than the big school. Yeah. And absolutely, like it doesn't have to be you straight up go to the four-year college first. Yeah. And I, whether it's like technology transformation projects, automation, you know, digital transformation. I used to work in um, doing data science and, and AI analytics for supply chain stuff. Every commonality I saw with that is like, take, take your project, Look at it like an architecture of building blocks and make sure that you can take small steps that have value in and of themselves. Because if the project changes or you know something ends up not working out, you've at least gained something by taking that first step and you can always pivot the next step. And so taking a small step like, okay, I'm gonna earn a two year degree. Because once you get to that degree, you've earned something that's really valuable and useful. And then you can take the next step and get the other two years or Maybe you take a break or maybe things change, right? Yeah. But you don't start with like a really, really big, you know, bite that you then can't finish if something goes wrong. Yeah. And unfortunately, a lot of people that do go to college end up not being able to finish for one reason yeah. or another. That's and if you just have an incomplete four-year degree, that's of a lot less value. Than even a two-year degree. Than a two-year degree. Yeah, even if you had three years in. Yeah. Yeah, like that was a big, big one for me, like because of like not having that upbringing and like, the knowledge to go to college. I also lived uh, a pretty rough like teenage years and um, I, I lived in fear of not making it through college. Like I, yeah. I, I did like 18 credit hours and worked a full-time job because like I was just like so in fear that something was gonna happen in life and like I just wasn't gonna be able to complete. Yeah. And, and so that, I mean, that drive is what made me complete and complete as quickly as I, I did, you know, two degrees in three years. Uh, that's but, crazy. <laughs> I mean, that's a lot. That's that, wow. And uh, I think depending on people's mentality, they may either have to do something like that or they may have the luxury of like, maybe they're just really good at committing to a goal and they can just stick with it long term. Like, but like. The point is everybody's circumstances are, are different, different and yeah. their personalities and their strengths yeah. are different. So again, my sister and I grew up, same environment. Mm -hmm. She went to UT as well. She dropped out after her first year. And then my parents were like, oh, what is she going to do? She moved <laughs> back to Houston. She worked at a pizza place. Oh, wow. Um, and it took her some time to find her way. And then she ended up finishing her degree years later at University of Houston while she was working full time. And like she's found her place and yeah. she's got a good job now and, and she's happy but she took a very different path in a different time frame from me yeah and you know when we were kind of all in the family like oh no Heidi you know like she left college and stuff thankfully my parents although of course I'm sure they were anxious or a little bit they were just like you know what we're just here 
and we got really lucky. We had parents that, although not financially gave us everything, they supported us. We knew that we had a safety net. Yeah. Like, if if everything crumbled, we would be able to like move home or you know something like that. But they just you know were there for her, but gave her the space and the time to do things in her own time. And I think that's also I saw with some of other people in my family and you know other part of my family, they were constantly just being pushed to go do things that it wasn't their choice or their idea. And most of that, they went and studied it and then never did anything with it, or they didn't complete the program because it wasn't on their own initiative. It wasn't their own internal drive that made them go do that. And I think oftentimes when you have these expectations or either your family or society or somebody tells you, you need to do this, the chances of success I think are lower because you don't have that internal motivation for yourself to be doing it. It's a good one to hear. Like I needed to hear that one because, like, I definitely, uh, you know, because of having the, the the rougher upbringing, because of uh, having to go through as much challenge and hard effort to get to where I got. Um, I'm also very driven to say you need to do this. Like you need to at least get to this point. You know, uh, it's so like my, my, you know, for me, like I, I I will push and drive people harder, and uh, at least at least to get to that two year degree point, maybe. Yeah. But also, like you're saying, like, if you just step back, if you just allow people the space to, like, find what they love, like, maybe it takes them six months, a year, a couple of years to go to that two-year degree and go to that college. But maybe it's a completely different avenue than, like, you was kind of pushing for or uh, just a completely different direction. But it works out well for them long-term in life. Yeah. And I think as long as you, you know, if those people are people in your orbit that you want to support, just... You know, be that encouraging, uplifting person that says, hey, whatever it is that you do want to do, like there, is, there are resources and options and paths forward because yeah. there are ways to. I tell this to people, too, if they work like low wage jobs or really any job, think about a job as not just you come in and put in the hour and what do you get out of it money wise? Right. right. Because it may be a crap paying job. What skills can you learn while you're in that job? Because that is on top of your pay, what you're actually getting out of it. So think about if you have choices between three jobs that all pay the same, which one teaches you the most skills Mm -hmm. that are transferable to something else? Yeah, absolutely. So when I was um, in college or no, in high school, I went back to Iceland one summer to get a summer job. I wanted to stay there. My mom was like, okay, well then you have to get a job and support yourself. And I um, got three jobs offers I applied for a bunch and I was first one I got was being a maid in a hotel and I was gonna accept that and a lot of my friends were like oh ew why would you do that that's a horrible job I'm like I don't care I get to learn how the hospitality industry works I'm gonna talk to all the people at the front desk and the manage the hotel and I'm gonna learn you know how to make beds properly I was not thinking like oh that's gonna be a crap job I was yeah. thinking like, oh, cool, what can I learn from that? There's yeah. a lot I don't know about how hotels run yeah. that I can probably learn if I network with people in the hotel. Yeah. And then I got offered a, a gardening job basically at the botanical gardens in town. And then I was like, oh, that one's pretty attractive. I get to like be out in the sun and learn about plants. And uh, then the third one I ended up getting I took was at a bookstore downtown. It was a retail job. It was my first time getting a retail job and it was a heavy tourism area so i was like i get to use my english speaking skills and like meet people from different cultures and i ended up taking the retail job but honestly i would have 
learned something from any one of them. Yeah. They all paid roughly the same. And so it was really like looking at the different experiences. And I've been able to turn a few people's like outlooks on their jobs around with that. Like my brother-in-law works in a warehouse and he's like, yeah, I'm going to go, I'm going to ask them to get, give me my forklift certification. And then I want to like work in receiving. Yeah. And so now he's done like three different jobs in the warehouse yeah. and he just recently got promoted because he's one of the only people that cares and comes in to learn yeah. versus most people at that pay scale and that type of job. They're just like there to come in for the hours and then they leave and then. Yeah. yeah. And, and somebody like that is they actually have a very um, unique position that if if they're if they're focused on like having like an owner mentality and then like paying attention to the things going on around them. Yeah. The CEO is never going to sit on a fork truck and drive around all day, right? So that, that fork truck driver that's sitting there driving around, if they're sitting there like, why do we move the material like that? Why do we do like this? Like, they're constantly like asking themselves that question. It's like, why are we doing our paperwork like that? Yeah. They might see something that's like a huge gap or a huge like, why don't we start stacking our material like this? We can save so much more space. And they're like, wow, if we did that all at all of our plants, we're going to save three million a year. You know, but like exactly, you know, a CEO don't can't maybe see that because they're not sitting on that four truck every day, looking at it, thinking about it. And uh, this is a really good story, actually, that uh, it was the guy who created um, Flaming Hot Cheetos. OK, so he's this guy's like just a Mexican janitor guy. Right. Yeah. And they're taking like the, the bad Cheetos that the the powder didn't go on them properly and they're taking them home and him and his wife are just like making these spicy version of cheetos and they're just doing this and they, they'd bring them to work and and share them with people and whatnot well the upper management uh got wind of it and um they loved it right and and it was that innovation and and, and they ended up like having a meeting with the ceo and the mexican guy is like so uneducated he's just a janitor right, right. and uh they're like, you know, how much market share do you want of the company for this idea? He had zero clue. So he just opened up his arms and said this much, right? And, and everybody around the room said, oh, like, hey, you know what I mean? And, and, and then the CEO looked at everybody, he said, see, this is he said something like, this is what you have to demand or something like that. Or yeah. see, if you would have came up with this idea that you would have been getting this much market share too. Yeah. And they gave him millions of dollars. Went from being a janitor to millions of dollars based on just presenting an idea, just looking at things from a different angle. And now look at look at Flaming Hot Cheetos. I know, Flaming Hot's on everything now. Everything. Everything. So I really like it doesn't matter where you are now in terms of if you're in a job, unless you're in a company that just has a horrible culture that does not appreciate people taking that owner mentality, in almost any type of job or or place, you can with that type of mentality get opportunities that you wouldn't otherwise. And if that workplace will not recognize your initiative for that, then it is perfect fuel for you to use those learnings to get to the next step in your next job, yeah. right? So either way, it can help you either in your current position, get ahead, um, or you know move further in your career and you're in your next step, right? Similar job at another place, but you can talk about it in an interview. You know, I came up with a process or an idea or something to improve operations at my current company and at especially entry level type jobs, low paying jobs, trust me, the hiring manager hardly ever hears that from any candidate. Yeah. And so you will immediately stand out and be looked at as possible management material, training, like people will want to bring you up if you're yeah. that type of person. Yeah. 
that comes in and does more than the bare minimum. Yeah, you'll pretty much have the job. Yeah. I mean, because that's like one of the things like people come to get a paycheck most of the time and you can see it in the way people talk. Yeah. And so whenever you come with that, that type of mentality, like you just see it. I mean, especially people who get good at it, they're like, oh, no, this person, yeah, they're. So that's really how my career has progressed. I started with Keyence and at that time, LinkedIn was new. I put my experience on LinkedIn and since Keyence so heavily trains all their people, recruiters love contacting Keyence people and I would get tons and tons of calls, but it's like, why would I want to go sell the same thing for a competitor? Like yeah. that does not attractive, right? Like a lateral move. When you do make those moves, you want to be careful about it. You also want to put in a good amount of time at your current company if you can. So you Unless, want to bounce around a lot. No, yeah. so I stuck around for three years, which in that world is like a while. <laughs> um, I, I said no to a ton of opportunities, but finally at, at the three year mark, when I got the opportunity to work with Festo, um, I was ready and it, I felt like it was time. I had also been doing machine vision for three years at that point, and I became very, very good at it. I would train other salespeople. Um, you know, I was constantly out in the field solving applications. I w was writing white papers for customers. But at the same time, I'm a person that thrives on learning. And I had told them this in my interviews and in my like, you know, HR performance reviews and stuff that like I wanted to move to another division at some point. Yeah. And they didn't give me that opportunity. So being in the factory setting, right, on the factory floor most of the time, I can't help it but look upstream and downstream on the line that I'm I'm yeah. inspecting something, right? We're kicking out you know, cans of lemonade because they're bad and because the, the lid didn't make it on there or the yeah. label is wrong. Well, how do we adjust the label so that it doesn't go wrong? How do we detect the drift so that by the time I'm kicking out product, that More doesn't happen, yeah. right? And so I was looking at, okay, handling and these other systems. So I got excited about, you know, going to adjacent technologies and learning about them that yeah. were also in that same environment. So going to Festo was a great move for me because then I got to learn all about pneumatics and electromechanical automation. And I was very frank with them when I went in the interview. I said, I don't know your technology. Like most of your salespeople are veteran pneumatics, you know, engineers that know how to draw schematic and all this stuff. And they've been doing it for 30 years. I'm not that person, but I'm really hungry to learn. I'm good at learning new things fast when I'm really interested. And I know like the customer process. I know the problems we're trying to solve. I, I go into these factories yeah. every day. And so they hired me knowing that they would have to teach me their products, yeah. but not necessarily so much the process. Yeah, that's the important part too, really. Yeah, and that's where I think also like, it's harder early on in your career to know that an interview is a two-way street. It definitely feels like a power imbalance. Like you're there to say all the right things to hopefully get the job. But I found that like when you approach it more from, you are also there to interview the company to make sure that it's a good fit. Companies respect that because they see that you're thinking about the overall long, you know, success of you in the role in the long run, not just you, please say yes to me to pay me money and I'm just gonna show up and you know, that's oftentimes I think where you get mismatch in hiring and churn yeah. because you're just thinking that, hey, somebody just needs to check all these boxes and answer all the right questions and then come in and want to be paid however much we're paying per hour. And like, that's not a long-term relationship in the building. Yeah. And uh, so I guess, again, I had in-demand skills, worked in an industry that has a lot of opportunities. And so just being very clear and open about what I'm doing, who I am, um, I found that the right opportunity sort of started coming to me. 
I didn't have to go out and apply for jobs. Because applying for jobs with a resume when you have no context, like it's a lot harder, right? It can be very difficult when you're a job seeker to just yeah. resume after resume to unknown people that don't know who you are or why you're there. Yeah. Um, so that's why I think also having an online presence, especially with LinkedIn these days, A, you can, back then it was just putting, you know, who I am and who I work for and what technologies I know. Yeah. But now it's so much more than that. You can build a personal brand. You can yeah. show your side projects or the things that interest you. Um, and that can definitely grab the attention of hiring managers as well as recruiters. And it gives them a good glimpse into like how motivated you are versus just another resume that comes across their desk. Yeah, and a lot of those things, like, like you said, building a personal brand, when it comes to hiring somebody, personability is like a huge part of that, right? Anything yeah. you do, if you're selling, you're hiring, any of that, like you want the personability. And, and being, if you can go into somebody's like LinkedIn page and like scroll, th scroll through, and see the things they're working on, see them as a person. If they do that, they have video. Video has so much context. Yeah. So like, if they see a video of you talking about a thing or like teaching, doing a webinar, um, they immediately now have more connection with you than so many of the other uh, people. And if you're you're submitting like a virtual uh, resume, mm -hmm. links are a big deal. Like if you can put like links to a video, if you have stuff on YouTube or something yeah. like that, like those can be really powerful uh, tools. Yeah, I just uh, recently interviewed someone and like, I found them on LinkedIn and I immediately was like, I, I looked at her profile, I sent her profile to my boss and I was like, hey, check out this, you know, person. From what her profile is and her interactions, like, I think she's for us, like, I love this. She had the energy, she was, you know, commenting on certain things and it just, and nowadays, even if you don't have a LinkedIn profile or you don't put yourself out there intentionally, guess what? You're leaving the hiring manager to find what they will find on you. So they'll check your, you know, social medias. Yeah. They'll check your Facebook profiles. Yeah. And if they see stuff that they don't feel like you would be somebody that is appropriate for their company, their brand, A, that'll be a negative for you. Um, so don't let other people sort of make up your story or tell your story for you if you're not putting something out there. Um, yeah, so I, I think that also one thing that you mentioned with that one, if you also have a lot of content like LinkedIn and that's the social media platform you give them, if you flood them with content, they're gonna go LinkedIn, scroll, 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 scroll. And if they they feel like they got a good amount, yeah. they may not go to your other platforms. Right. And and somebody like me, I, I will get a little bit more personal on Facebook. I will mention some things that I won't mention on LinkedIn. So like people who really, really wanna follow us, like, or follow me, like you can go on LinkedIn, you'll see a little bit more of the edgier side that like, Maybe it's not like business accepted or, or just like if you want to see in the, like my, the behind the scenes of my family and like, you know, there's also good stuff that could you know, help for interviews and stuff there. But like um, also too, like for those who, who still want to express who they are, but maybe it's not like the best business image. Uh, if you have like, if you provide them enough content, enough detail about yeah. you, Maybe they don't have to do the, the d deep digging and the searching of, of who you are. Exactly. I think if you present them with enough that they feel like they do know you, they don't need to go. It's when they when they don't see that anywhere, they go look for the other stuff. Yeah. Right. And I think at this point they realize like humans are not, we're not always professional outside of work. Yeah. And even now we're starting to see people being able to bring more of their more whole more of selves yeah, to work. Absolutely. Right. Maybe we have yeah. crazy hair or tattoos or piercings yeah. or clothing that we like like nowadays i think people are understanding more that doesn't have anything to do with how you perform as an employee or a, a professional 
So the, what is professional, I think, is changing for a good, it, I think that's good yeah, in a way, you know? And like businesses are recognizing that it's actually a positive thing. Yeah. Like people relating with that guy with tattoos or piercings and you know, like you're almost gaining customers because like you have this guy who at one point in time you wouldn't even hire, but now. Well, people gravitate towards energy that they identify with. And when everybody puts themselves in the same box and, you know, dresses and acts the same way, you don't actually feel their real authentic energy. You don't bring it, you know, you, you wall yourself off and you become this business version of yourself. And then I, I think that that really limits your growth as well in a professional setting because then what I found over my career and we'll, maybe we'll do another episode yeah. later on how I got into startup land and you know, all that stuff. But it's really been me following sort of the paths that have opened for me and what feels like a fit in the timing. And then I've always had somebody to check with and it's most of the time been my dad. I call my dad or my former boss and say, hey, I have this opportunity. I'm thinking about it. What do you think? You know, and I don't always take their advice, but usually their advice or their questions that they tell me to ask myself or somebody else about the opportunity have helped me clarify whether or not I should go in one direction or another. Um, so try to find people around you that have something other than a, you know, usually your parents or other people like that are not the best. In my case, my dad was like a professional influence for me, so I would ask him, but um, yeah, so Thanks for thanks for asking. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I love how we organically segued over to like the strategy part of this yeah. podcast. Um, I do. I would like to like ask like if you can give us kind of now the brief summary of like where you're at now. Uh, sure. So you so you left Kansas, went to Festo, and and we'll kind of close out. And so don't take for granted your relationship with your current coworkers. When you move on, they move on. Keep in touch. LinkedIn is great for that. So a person I worked with at Festo. Um, I went to go sell software. I uh, then ended up leaving and I worked for a bunch of different startups because I had this drive. I wanted to grow something. And I just went and worked unpaid while I did some consulting. And I tried out, I worked for a hardware startup. I worked for a software startup. I worked for my old company and I did some consulting and I did like one or two days a week for each. And I ended up with a full-time job at a software startup because I kind of tried out the cultures and the different roles and they offered me a full-time job. A couple of them did at the same time and then I, I made a choice. And somebody that I used to work with uh, took another job and then started a company. And we went to lunch and he was just like telling me about this idea. It was a bit in stealth mode. Um, and he wanted to know my thoughts on you know using AI and the data analytics. And so we kind of stayed in touch and I kind of consulted a little bit or you know we bounced ideas. and. I ended up leaving my last startup because I had uh, my daughter was born prematurely and she kind of threw all my plans out the window as to how what time I was going to take off. And I realized that that lifestyle, I was working a lot, was not going to work for me while I had a really tiny baby that I needed to take care of. So I ended up moving from the Bay Area to Seattle. Uh, I took some time off. I uh, flipped some houses. I started a real estate business. I started with my husband, not just me by myself, but my husband and I and a vending machine business. Um, and <laughs> yeah, right, I can't, I, even if with a baby in my arms, I can't sit still. I was like on video calls, doing trainings, talking to lenders, like going to tra all kinds of stuff, right? I'm not one to sit still. But then really it was just, again, the opportunity kept kind of coming around in different ways. 
Roman came to Seattle to meet with me to tell me the trajectory and where they were at with, with Quote Beam. And um, I was just super interested in it and was really ideating on it, you know, the, what I thought it was going to do or be or it was going to be great. And it, I wasn't in a position to join, but I was interested. And so I put a little bit of my energy into it. And it just kept kind of like circling around until the time was right. And after COVID, we had, my family had left Washington. I had two kids. We wanted to make a change. I was gonna have to move. And so I was like, and then they took the company uh, full time, offered me to come work for them. I was like, I'm moving to Houston. They're like, we don't care. You know, we know you, you've been around long enough. You know what we're doing. You've been following along and, you know, been semi part of it, you know, for a while. So, but all the startup jobs that I got were through me inserting myself into the situation, not getting paid, right? Not a full-time job. Uh, the earlier software company too, it was like through somebody that I knew that was my customer before introduced me to the founder of this company. So you, you know, if you have something that you want to go for, I felt like, yeah, I live in the Bay Area. I want to, you know, I see this startup culture. I hear about it all the time, but I have no connections. I don't know how to get into that world. I started just putting myself out there into these small roles where like, how can I add value? What can I do both to learn? So I worked for pennies. I worked for free in some cases. And I know that that's, a, a, again, a luxury position that I was in. I had a little bit of savings and I was able to like take some time to do that. But find a way to insert yourself into the place you want to be, meet people, network, and show them who you are. And all of the jobs and opportunities that I've gotten this way, if I had applied for with a resume, I don't think I would have even made it to a hiring manager's desk because I don't have the che I don't meet the check boxes that people would be looking for. But once they see me, they see what I can do, they see my potential, my personality, those are the people that have offered me these opportunities because they it's easier to take a risk on someone that you can see like that. You see, you know, you don't take a risk on someone that you don't know whose resume you have in your hands. And so now I work for uh, a startup. We just, we've been, uh, I've been at it for a little over a year. And what we're doing is building a technology platform to connect suppliers and customers to manage the procurement process in the industrial automation industry. So for systems integrators, and I'm sure you know this, right? And particularly custom OEMs like machine builders, the bill of materials for a project can get extensive and complicated, right? And you're having to choose products that meet the spec. You're designing a, pro uh, you know, a whole thing that has to work together. But then you have to worry about now, like supply chain issues. Like, can, is this actually available? Who can I buy it from? Um, so there's that on the design side. And then just even, you know, working with the, the distributors and stuff, a lot of them have some older technology behind how they do their quoting and yeah. that sort of thing. So you call them or you email them and you ask them for a quote and then they send you a PDF back and then you may have so to have, yeah, and it takes a long time. The feedback we've gotten and my CEO Roman used to be a machine builder. This is why he started this company. It was a problem he dealt with his entire career. He felt, and I've heard this from companies as big as Tesla and you know everybody across the board, engineers spend too much time on procurement which I would call busy work for engineers. It's not their job. It's yeah. not where their skills lie, yeah. right? Why should they be wasting time going back and forth with vendors? Yeah. yeah, exactly. And it can take up to two weeks or up to four weeks to source a bomb for a machine. 
And you may have to go to 50 to 80 different websites and vendors to actually fulfill the entirety of the bomb. In a world where we are building automation to make manufacturing more efficient, and then we do that to build the machine that makes the manufacturing more efficient, it's, it's kind of a dichotomy, right? But we've been doing it the same way for the last 20, 30 years. Um, and we decided if by now nobody's done something about this, yeah. and yeah, of course there are great like distributors that have great websites now. Yeah. But if you talk about the 17,000 independent small distributors of industrial products across just North America, the percentage of them that are the technologically advanced is very low. Yeah. And I really personally have a passion for working with small businesses, family-owned companies, employee-owned businesses. These are the ones that don't have the resources to invest in their own you know, huge ERP systems and e-commerce systems and all these yeah. things that can help automate their work, yeah. but they can really benefit from it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And like, it's super powerful too. Cause like, that's one thing with like, with us starting a company is like, there's so many things I've seen moving so slow. And I'm like, you know, I just, it blew me away. Like how slow things moved. And like that, this is definitely one of them. Like if it wasn't for relationship building with like our vendors, yeah, I would, and, and we could get everything from like, say for instance, automation direct McMaster car. Yeah. We would order everything from there if we could. Right. Just because you go in there, you order, you click, boom, it'll be here in two, three days. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's issues with some items now, but like that ease of that process, if it wasn't for relationships and it wasn't for the fact that they just don't have every product that we need, like Allen Bradley processes or something. Yeah. So this is why we're building Quopium because we want it to be yeah. as easy to order from anybody as it is to just go to McMaster car. The problem yeah. is every individual vendor has a limitation on their line card yeah. and their stock availability. Yeah, or right? their region they're allowed to sell in. So or we want to build yeah. a system that gives you that ease of use no matter who you're actually buying from. Mm -hmm. So kind of like everybody expects you want to, you go to Amazon and you buy now and it's painful to have to buy an old way. Yeah. And I will oh, pay, absolutely. I'll pay more for an item on Amazon 100%. or McMaster car or DigiKey or something yeah. because it's easy and I don't have to waste my time. Yeah. And I think the, people also realize your time is valuable. Yeah, way more valuable than the five, $10 extra you're spending on exactly. the product. Exactly, exactly. Um, so that is huge. And we wanna use technology to keep the relationships in place, mm -hmm. but make, make it to where we can spend the time doing this mm -hmm. instead of emailing each other back and forth like documents and stuff. Yeah. Like let's spend our human time on building the relationships and then automate as much of that busy work as possible. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's really you know, what we're trying to do with Quote Beam. Awesome. And I would say also just one more thing, I know we're over time, but <laughs> I've learned a lot of different things. And over the years, I didn't think, like they were adjacent, but not connected necessarily. Mm. Like machine vision, material handling, electromagnetic simulation, mm. um, supply chain analytics and AI, all these things are somewhat separate. And now Quote Beam touches all those Bring things. All yeah. And that is one of the things that makes me a unique fit for this company because I have these various different experiences mm -hmm. that a lot of people don't have. Yeah. And I think too, you as a systems integrator, right? Mm -hmm. You said you've worked on, when you were you know, learning things, you kind of jumped from you know, one thing to another to another a little bit. That's also what makes an extremely effective systems integrator, because guess what? You have to integrate multiple different things and yeah. different technologies. Absolutely. And that's another thing that kind of like, different people have different personalities. Some people are great at like, they just want to learn one thing really well and they can get a PhD. Yeah and know that thing yeah, 100%, be, expert. Yeah, be the, the expert. expert. Yeah. And then some people are like, I am not that interested in anything to study yeah. it for 10 years, 20 yeah. years. 
or I don't, you, you get asked, what's your five-year plan? And people go, I don't know. And they feel bad about that. Don't feel bad about that. <laughs> you will find a way, even if you never get a plan, I still don't know what I want to be. <laughs> Awesome. And I've had an amazing time and an amazing career, and it's just getting started. So anybody can do it. Awesome. What else do you have going on? Because we I, we know you have a podcast. You got to bring that one up, right? Uh, yeah. So automation ladies. Again, I'm kind of a crazy person. I follow these little tangents and paths that come into my view or my life. So when I came back from the real estate stuff into LinkedIn, I saw this burgeoning sort of community. Yeah. And I connected with a bunch of women or ladies in, in automation that were into the same stuff that I was. And I had always been kind of isolated with that. Like I would have one female colleague in my office mm. or, you know, there's a handful of us at the sales conference, but generally you're kind of alone. My friends, my other girlfriends, they don't care about automation, oh, yeah. you know? So I found these few <laughs> women that <laughs> Courtney Fernandez at, at uh, UR gets like the original credit really. Uh, and Ali G, my, my partner for Automation Ladies, they both started some sort of informal, like one of them was a Zoom call, the other one was like a chat on LinkedIn. And uh, I just thought, hey, if we can do something where we broadcast this more broadly, yeah. more women and girls just over time will maybe mm -hmm. bump across us and go, hey, there's somebody that's into what I'm into and I can connect with or ask questions or see as a role model or something like that. Um, because representation is super important. Like people don't know what is available or possible if they don't see it. And so that's really why we're doing it. Neither one of us has the time. Allie runs her own business. I, you know, do quote beam and have kids and this and that. So it's been a little bit rocky. Um, but again, it's it's not so much about the production. It's about yeah. the community that we're building. As long as you keep it alive, that's really all that matters. And we've been keep really lucky with all the people that have come into our orbit because of that. We've interviewed some amazing girls and women in different places in the industry. I've learned so much through those conversations. Um, so currently, check us out on LinkedIn. Our page is Automation Ladies. It will be coming to all major podcast networks, platforms in the next few weeks. Maybe YouTube. maybe by the time that this has aired. Yeah. I don't yeah. know. Yeah, maybe. Are, you're, and you're definitely on YouTube right now, aren't you? Or uh, we have a YouTube page. We have not published anything okay. there. So LinkedIn okay. is really the only place that we have any content okay. currently. Okay. Yeah. Are you going to get it published on YouTube? Yes. Okay. Check it out there then. Yeah. <laughs> Eventually, <laughs> yeah, Automation Ladies. Anywhere, I guess. We have yeah. a few things set up. Gotcha. We'll, we'll see. We'll end up being everywhere eventually. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah. Thanks for we chatting loved, with me. We loved your angle. We loved all the value you added. And uh, looking to continue our relationship. Yeah. Sounds good. Thanks, guys. Thank you. <laughs>